Let's hear the word of God as it is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said unto me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sin we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious word that we've read, that you gave to Nehemiah and is recorded for our benefit and for our instruction. Thank you, dear Father, for the fact that you have spoken to Chris as he read this word this week. And Lord, I ask that you give him your blessing and your enabling as he shares with us the things that you want us to know through him from this precious word. Give us open minds to hear. Give us willing hearts to believe. And give us a will that will choose to obey you. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. 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 
Thank you, uh, Dorothy, for reading God's word to us this morning. Dear friends, I'm sure you know this, I'm sure you do. Melbourne is ranked world's, the world's most livable city again in August 2013, this year. It's been voted as the most livable city in the world. It has been crowned the globe's most livable city for the third time in a row. And it has beaten, in fact, nudging out the Austrian capital, Vienna. Can you believe that? Right. And in the review of 140 cities, Victoria's capital was given perfect scores for healthcare, education, and infrastructure. And meanwhile, three other Australian cities made this year's top ten, including Adelaide, number five, Sydney, this Sydney is number seven, any Sydney siders here? Well, mm. and Perth. Perth is number nine. This is the list, actually. See that Melbourne, Vienna, and Vancouver. You can see, see, see all those those cities mentioned there. And Melbourne will live, my dear friends, in a great city, a great city of Melbourne, a vibrant place, a cosmopolitan city. It's, it's a kind of global city. I'm sure you've been in the city and you, you pick up the vibes, you, you pick up all the excitement, the, the things that goes on in the city. It's a beautiful city. But we know for sure that our city does not have walls around it like some other cities in the world do. For example, the Dutch were well known for building walls around their cities. I spoke to my father-in-law yesterday because I was googling some of the pictures uh, in, in, in Holland and he did mention to me a lot of cities there. I, I can't pronounce some of their names. I'm sure my wife can do that. Rose can do that. Horkum and Gorinkum. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. All of these cities that had a beautiful big walls around them. Now, I wonder whether any one of you recognize this place. Mm. Anyone been to, you've been to Sri Lanka? The colleges have been there. Well, I thought I must put that up there anyway. It's a city, it's, it's called the city of Gaul, and it has this, this huge fort, fortress around it, built by the Dutch to protect the city. It's, it's quite a staggering place, actually, and it's still there. In fact, we have one of the best cricket stadiums being built in Gaul at the moment. Well, it is functioning, actually. So for us today, in 2013, walls around cities may not mean much for us anyway. Without walls, however, we know in the past, a city was vulnerable to, to foreign enemies coming into the city. The city would lose control of itself. And this is why I think it makes sense, for example, in the book of Proverbs, when we read in Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 28, it says this, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. See, the city, when its walls are broken, it doesn't have control of itself. And the proverb says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. And so today, uh, we want to commence a series of messages based on the book of Nehemiah, titled, Arise and Build. Arise and Build. That's the series. In fact, uh, uh, we're going to work our way through this book, and we will be challenged in this book. To see how God uses a man by the name of Nehemiah. Actually, his name means 
The Lord has comforted. That's what the name Nehemiah means. The Lord has comforted. And how God uses this man and his people to bring about a renewal in that land. To bring about rebuilding of the city. And bring about a wonderful work in, in, in Jerusalem itself. And I hope that as we work our way through this book, that God would challenge us to consider our calling. To consider our service for him in the world. To be visionary. Alright? To be prayerful. To be proactive. And to trust in the providence of our God. And that's what we will see as we work through this book. In fact, our moderator general, Reverend David Cook, he preached last Sunday night here. It was a great sermon on redemption's fruit. Remember that now. Uh, and uh, he, he was a speaker uh, for the assembly opening night. In fact, he's encouraged the church to think about, his sermon was titled, Next. I'm not trying to figure out what does that mean, Next. And he was basically bringing our attention to start thinking about the next generation. To start thinking about those who will be coming after us. Because you and I won't be here forever, would we? We'll be gone. Well, in God's timing, we'll be gone. But what about the people who are going to come after us? What about the next generation? What about the gospel for them? It was really challenging. And the assembly has to start thinking. Our church has to start thinking about the next generation. Of course, we need to think about the people today as well. Don't get me wrong, right? We need to show care and everything for our people today. But as a church, we need to start thinking as to how we are going to connect with a culture that is increasingly, increasingly antagonistic towards Christian things in our, in our, in our community. We heard about that. Uh, in, in my office from uh, from Ian this morning, that each time he visits, I think I'm right in saying this, he sees that our culture has shifted more and more against the, against Christianity. And that is a sad thing. We, we may not see it because we're living in this society, but for people who are coming from outside every year, they can see this shift that is going, going on. So we need to think ahead. We need to plan ahead. We need to be visionary. And as we study this book, let me, let me make then some introductory comments uh, very briefly about this book. Well, who wrote this book? Ezra and Nehemiah. They were the primary authors. Originally, it was one book. When was it written? I, I think it was written around uh, 430, 400 BC. Where? In the promised land, Jerusalem. Why? I think one of the key themes that comes through this book, there are many other themes, I'll highlight that to you in a moment. We see the inseparable, I put that, the inseparable relationship between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We see God's sovereignty being displayed in a powerful way and the responsibility of God's people to work under God's sovereignty, work together in that plan. So we have the who, the when, the where, and the why of this, uh, of this book. And there are some significant themes. Let me highlight them this morning. One is the sovereignty of God, as I mentioned, and the responsibility of man. We see the nature of leadership. Now, there are few books that speak more clearly than this Old Testament book of Nehemiah on leadership. If you want to study a book of godly leadership, look at the book of Nehemiah. You see it there in this man. What does godly leadership look like? We see the priority of prayer. We see the blessings of an effective teaching ministry. 
we see the building and the rebuilding of the wall as both a needed facility and a growth journey for the people of God. Because as they were building these walls, friends, there were challenges, there were battles, there were moments of desperation, there was discouragement, there was despondency, there was opposition. And they continued to keep going. As you go through the journey of your Christian faith, with everything that goes on around us, we are strengthened for the task ahead of us, isn't it? Strengthened. And the importance we see of confession of sin and repentance, we see the primacy of worship as a significant theme here. We see the trusting of God and his power and his providence uh, in the book. I've just given you some of these significant themes just for our information this morning. Let me give you a very quick, brief historical background as well here. Uh, the book of Joshua. I was. I will go from the book of Joshua. For it. Right. The book of Joshua begins with a sharp transition. It begins with these words: After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Um, I have listened to sermons. And you have, and you've listened to. You can't remember all sermons, can you? You can't. I mean, don't even remember last week's sermon, right? It's understandable. And uh, I used to sit in the back of the church when I was converted. And I remember this preacher. And I remember him getting up at a church in, in Colombo, in Sri Lanka. And he looked, took, took this text and he said, I'm going to preach on the topic, Moses, my servant, is dead. I thought, man, you better get this dead right or it's going to be a dead sermon. Well, it wasn't. Of all the sermons that I've remembered, this one stands out. I don't know why, but it just stood out. It's as if I can picture this man today in front of me, preaching on this text. And you know what he said? He said, you know people, with God, nothing is impossible. Moses, God's servant, was dead. God raises another man. We may think we are indispensable. Oh, oh no, no. God will raise someone else. Wow. Powerful, isn't it? I'm not number one. Nor are you. Nor are we as a church family. We are here because of God's grace. Is that clear? We are here because of his mercy. We are here because he has brought us here together. We can't presume upon that grace. Never. But our God is a good God. And, and Moses, my servant, is dead. And so Joshua described for us Israel's conquest and the initial settlement in the promised land. And then we have judges which recounted three centuries of leaders, some good and some bad. Next was Ruth, the wonderful book of Ruth. And we see God's providential care for his people in desperate times. After Ruth came 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles, which told and retold the story of God dealing with his people through Samuel, Saul, David, Solomon, and all the kings of Israel and Judah, until the northern kingdom was destroyed, and the southern kingdom was exiled to Babylon in 586 B.C. And then comes along Ezra, the Jewish exiles returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple, completing the work in 516 BC, 70 years after the old temple was destroyed. 
And now, in Nehemiah, it's about 430, 440 BC, God's people returning, some of them are returning back, and they begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You see, I've given you that historical perspective very briefly this morning to know that the Bible is accurate about these things. We have an historical document as well. Yes, it is God's word, but we also have the historicity of the scriptures verified with dates and names, times and seasons. Wonderful, isn't it? When Ian raised God's word this morning when he was speaking, He said, we love this word, right? We love it. This is the word. Because it is given. It's precise. It's clear. It's, it's hard at times to understand some of the text, but it is God's word. And so we have this broad outline in the book, The Return of Nehemiah, The Rebuilding of the Wall of Jerusalem, chapters 1 to 6. The renewing of Jerusalem's worship, the worship of God's people being renewed in the covenant there. The repopulation of Jerusalem's streets, the renewal of Jerusalem's covenant with God. And so we have this broad outline. And so I want to look at this morning, Uh, in, in Nehemiah 1, under the, 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 this caption, the hope for the city. Was there any hope for Jerusalem? You see, the people were despondent. They were discouraged. They were down. Was there hope? Is there hope for the church of Jesus Christ today? When we look around us, we might feel, hmm, it's hard yard, isn't it? It's hard work. What's going on? Two things we see in this text this morning. I'm going to go through it very quickly with you this morning. The report and the response. You see, the book begins in Babylon. Nehemiah receives the report with very troubling news. In the month of Kislev, the, time is, the, 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 the month is given specifically November to mid-December on our calendar. It's in the 20th year of uh, the year of Artaxerxes. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Chapter 2, verse 1. See that there. So we have a date, we have a time, we have a person. We also have a location, Susa, which was the winter residence of the Persian kings. They would go out to Susa and refresh themselves in their winter palaces. palaces. Imagine that, eh? Having a winter palace that you can go and refresh yourself in. Wow. It's something like a holiday house. No, more than that. <laughs> and he gets the report. It comes from Anani. Uh, Anani, some might have said, is, could be a brother of, uh, of Nehemiah. Uh, in, in chapter 7 or so, we could read about him. And so it's in the month of Kislev, and Nehemiah heard that Jerusalem, the city of God, was in trouble. I don't know if you can see it clearly there. We have a general kind of picture of uh, some of the walls that surrounds uh, the, the city, right? Uh, they were in trouble. Jerusalem's walls in Nehemiah's day, broken. They were in disrepair. The walls were down. The enemies were marching in and out. The gates were burned down by fire. It was desperate, discouragement, the destruction was unbearable. Probably the result of Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. And this report that comes back to Nehemiah causes him distress. He was concerned for the cause of God's people. And because it was in Jerusalem that God was worshipped in the temple. It is the city, it was the city of God. In bad shape. No hope. But what did God do? He prepared a man. Who was not going to let this thing get him down. A man with a passion. 
A man with a vision. A man who wanted to get the job done. Oh, how we need such men and women in the church, don't we? How much we need them. Someone who would be saying, yes. Yes. You see, Nehemiah was not a can't-do man. Rather, he was a can-do person. Not because of his own strengths. It is because of God's strength and mercy that has empowered him. Have you ever felt weak in yourself at times? Have you ever daunted at the task that is ahead of you? Have you ever asked yourself, how am I going to do this thing? It's beyond me. Have you? I'm sure you have. God comes and gives us that strength because he's given us that vision, that passion. And Nehemiah was such a guy. You see, what we see in the book is the story of the literal building of the walls of Jerusalem, the type. But we cannot miss the fact that it is also the story of a spiritual building up of Jerusalem. J.I. Packer in his wonderful book, The Passion for Faithfulness, says this about Nehemiah. Humanly, Nehemiah is the key figure in both stories. His book reveals him as a pastoral leader, par excellence, devoted and dynamic, humble and zealous, wise and patient, and at every point like Moses, Paul, Martin Luther, Oliver Cromwell, Winston Churchill, seeming a little larger than life by reason of the clarity with which he defined his goals and the energy with which he pursued them. What about you this morning, friends? Here is Nehemiah, the construction guru, the construction man with a vision. Where there was no hope, Nehemiah was raised to bring hope to the city. And he was willing to lead this remarkable work of rebuilding and renewal. And the Lord sustained him through it all. The Lord was with him. See, Nehemiah points us, I think, more than this building, the walls, major project, points us to Christ and onto the bigger issues of the walls in the city of God. The New Testament, friends, is not over in Jerusalem. The New Testament is the church of Jesus Christ, the temple of God, the city of God, the citadel of God. And you might look at the church and say, well, its walls are down. Its gates are burned. And that's why we are so ineffectual, certainly here in Australia. The church is struggling, certainly in the Western world. We are not ineffectual because we are irrelevant. There is nothing more relevant than the gospel of Jesus Christ for this world. There is nothing more relevant than the gospel of Jesus Christ for Australia. And I trust that as we study Nehemiah, that the Lord will show us what it means to rebuild the walls of his church, his people, that is spiritually. So, what is the response then of Nehemiah to this news? Friends, we see that in, in chapter 1 and in verse 4. When I heard these things, what did he do? What did he do? What does your Bible tell us? When I heard these things, he sat down and wept. And for some days I moaned, I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, wept. Men don't cry, is that correct? Oh, men, come on. 
it's okay, <laughs> right? We do, don't we? We do. I mean, I, 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 I cry. There are times that the tears pour down. And you know that when my daughter got married, I was, for about a week, I was a suki. It was hard. And I still, when I see them, I still get all tears. Anyway, it's okay. <laughs> there are moments that I wept. I wept before the Lord for, for you, his people. You know, it, uh, it, I, I have wept before God for you. I say it sincerely and honestly. As your pastor, I'm here to serve Christ and I'm here to serve you. I have moments that I wept before God for this church. And I always, constantly, almost every week, ask myself, Lord, what are we on about at St. Stephen's? Where are you leading St. Stephen's today and for the future? I told the selection committee when I came here, uh, some of them are still here in this congregation, smiling. I said, if you want a maintenance man, please don't call me. Because I'm not here for that. But if you want me to be mission-minded, then I'm open to it. You see? Because Nehemiah wept. He cried. He moaned. He fasted. He prayed. This is leadership, friends. Godly leadership begins with tears. Godly leadership begins on our knees. Because it's not about my will. It's about what God's will for God's church, for God's people. You see, that's what we see here, isn't it? You see, J.I. Packer characterizes three strengths of Nehemiah. Namely, his personal zeal, his pastoral commitment, his practical wisdom. And as I reflected upon those three things, I must say I want to humbly add another one to this list. I say humbly because I can't compare myself with J.I. Packer. His prayerful life. His prayerful life that comes out. This weeping was not a sign of weakness, but strength, as it was Jeremiah, Paul, our Savior Jesus wept. You see, he wept because the city of God, the dwelling place of God, was in ruins. It's moved. Uh, one writer puts, this, put it, puts it this way beautifully. Our tears, our tears water the seeds of providence that God has planted on our path. And without our tears, those seeds could never grow and produce fruit. Beautiful, isn't it? Most of us would have tried to come up with some strategy and then pray. We knew, we know perhaps we should be doing better. Coming to God first in prayer. It begins with prayers. I don't plan to go through all aspects of this prayer, but to outline the key areas here. It begins with praise. And then in verses 6 and 7, there's a confession of sin, individually and collectively. We have sinned. Do you take sin seriously? You see, the serious matter, friends. We have sinned. And then he says, remember your people. Verses 8 and 9, you see, he's citing God's promises back to God and reminds God of how his name is tied up with his people's name, and he claims the promises of God. Now, friends, at my Bible study growth group, I have a great growth group on Friday mornings. I've got to resist the temptation of eating chocolate cakes and muffins. My growth group ladies are so great, they look after their pastor excellently well. Anyway, last Friday, we were talking about promises and Malachi, and here is... A lady who brought this for me this morning to show me. 
It's a box of promises. Actually, it's Margaret Burdens. Someone else has it as well. And when you open this box, now she did, Margaret did mention to me, you must return that box to me after the service. It is a promise I will keep, Margaret. Anyway, in this box, I can't turn this around too much, there are all of these things are promises. And you pull one out, and there's a promise in it. And I pulled one out just this morning. It's quite remarkable, actually. I didn't know what was in it, and this is what I have. There is nothing too hard for thee. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Wow. I mean, doesn't that fit well with this sermon, with this talk this morning? There is nothing too hard for thee. This promise goes back in this box here. Anyway, I will leave it there for now. But there you go, a promise box. Anyone else has a promise box? I see a few hands going up. Oh, wonderful. I, I've never heard of this thing. I only heard of the promise box on Friday morning. So here it is. Praise God. Full with promises. Friends, I'm going to wind up soon because time is moving on. You see, it's a time of prayer. Nehemiah prays. When things are bad, he prays to this God. And God sustains him. It is God alone who can change the hearts of people. It is God alone who can move kingdoms. It begins with prayer. And I want to encourage us as a congregation, friends, to be on our knees, to pray to this God, that God will do great and mighty things in this place for his glory and for his praise. That he will do things beyond our imagination. As we trust him, the all-omnipotent God, the all-powerful God, the all-omniscient God, the all-knowing God, and the all-omnipresent God, that is the all-present God, because we trust in him, friends. You see, Nehemiah points us more beyond Jerusalem, points us to Jesus, the one who left the splendor of heaven and came upon this earth. To die on the cross, to redeem a people for himself, to build his church. And he stands behind us and guides us and leads us as a loving shepherd of his people. Do you love this Lord? See, speaking of cities, friends, as I wind, wind up the, city, the, the sermon this morning. We live in a city, in a world that is no less spiritually bankrupt, destroyed, and confused than the city of Jerusalem was. I'll ask the question this morning, do we have Jesus' heart for our city, for the world? Do you have Jesus' heart for the city and for the world? Do we have a heart for people who don't know Christ? Do we have a heart to see others come to know Jesus? So friends, this morning, may I encourage us to be men and women of prayer, knowing that our God can do great things through you as you trust him and know his grace and power. We must rise, arise and get on with the job. We must arise and take up the challenge because our Lord has called us to do so.